Hey there, happy 4th of July, woo hoo! Time for fireworks and sparklers and celebrating. So awesome to remember kind of the history of our country, to celebrate some of the freedoms that we have. Uh, but I should mention, don't try this at home. Namely, light your sparklers inside. I'm watching the sparks fall bad. Thankfully, I have a bucket and I came prepared and I put that out and all is safe. It is awesome to have a holiday weekend, 4th of July, Independence Day, celebrate the fact that we were able to win our independence from England and uh, we were able to establish a country where freedom reigned um, and, and we still enjoy those freedoms. We have the opportunity to worship uh, in the way that we want to, one of the greatest freedoms that we have. We have rights as individuals to uh, pursue business and commerce and kind of make our way in the world uh, to flourish together as humanity. But, you know, those freedoms are, are always a mixed bag. It's been pointed out, especially recently, that even at the signing of the Declaration of Independence, not everybody was free. Uh, those folks were attended by slaves at that time. And so even while we talked about all people being created equal in the image of God, there were clearly some that were not. They were not free to pursue life, liberty, and, uh, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, those things were not afforded to them in the same way as they were to others. Uh, we've been talking about sort of this mixed bag with some of the monuments that are in our country, monuments to people that we know love the Lord, and yet they um, defended slavery. And uh, those things are, are hard to figure out. And I think if we're honest, we recognize that we all have mixed hearts. We have things that we see clearly, um, and then we have things that we don't see so clearly. I know that's certainly true for me. Uh, the Lord has given me vision in certain areas and allowed me to see things very clearly, but I am sure, and um, you know, my family and others point some of these things out. There are blind spots that I have. Um, and that's one of the things that I actually really love about the scriptures. When we come to the scriptures, we meet um, sort of good guys and bad guys. We meet people who are following the Lord and then people who are walking away from the Lord, men and women. But they're not flat characters. Uh, we see the, the good ones have flaws. You know, we look at somebody like King David, who was a man after God's own heart, and yet he was an adulterer and he was a murderer. Uh, we, we see somebody like Esther, who ultimately stood forward very courageously, but she was afraid uh, at the beginning, and she wasn't sure she was up to the task, or Noah, who God made a covenant with, righteous Noah, uh, but he got drunk, and he was uh, was indiscriminate with some of that. So it's a mixture, and it's actually one of the things, I think, that gives us real confidence about the Bible, because the Bible isn't trying to tell a, a story like a fairy tale in which people only 
carry out one role is trying to tell us a true story of humanity where we have these ups and downs and we're a mixed bag and we all need Jesus. We all need the grace of the gospel that we talk about so readily. And this story is no different. It's not a very popular story or even a very well-known story. But in it, we meet Jehoram, who's the son of um, Ahab. We meet Jehoshaphat, who is the king of Israel. Jehoram is counted evil, ultimately. Jehoshaphat is counted good. But they're each a mixed bag of their own. We also see a king of Edom, and those three kings uh, together go out to do battle with Mesha, the king of Moab. And uh, incidentally, Mesha, the king of Moab, is a well-attested historical figure. We have this thing called the Moabite Stone, which Mesha gives some report and actually talks about battling the king of Israel. So this is not a made-up story. This is a historical account that really brings us back into the day and age. The, the situation was that Moab... Uh, was subjugated to Israel under King Ahab. Remember, we said way back in 1 Kings 16 that while Israel was a mess religiously and falling away from the Lord, it was a very prosperous time for them. You get hints of that here. Mesha uh, was a sheep breeder and had to deliver uh, 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. That was probably worth millions of dollars in tribute to Israel. So Israel was sitting uh, high on the hog. They were, they were living well. And of course, we can understand then why Mesha would want to revolt. But Jehoram says, no, we've got to continue with this program of subjugating Moab. And so he invites Jehoram, uh, Jehoshaphat to help him. And their families were linked by marriage. Jehoshaphat's son, who's also named Jehoram, as if it's not confusing enough, uh, is married to Ahab's daughter, maybe Jehoram's sister, uh, so, or at least his half-sister. Uh, so their families are linked, so he calls Jehoshaphat. Uh, he gets the king of Edom, who is also under subject uh, to Israel, and the three of them go out to do battle against Mesha. They take a sort of circuitous route to get there. They kind of go south and they go through some uninhabited, wilderness, deserty type places. And as they do, they come into this situation where they're out of water uh, for the army, the actual people in the army, along with the livestock and the animals, everybody else that is accompanying or everything else that is accompanying them on this battle. And they get desperate. And so this is where the bulk of the story is, and they call on a prophet. Ultimately, it's Elisha, our guy that we've been studying. We don't know why he's there in the desert. We don't know really where he comes from. Uh, we can say that men like Elisha, who live by the Spirit of God, uh, often show up at the right times. And uh, Elisha does, and he then gives him a prophecy that tells us not so much about Elisha, the focus isn't on him, but it's on Yahweh or Jehovah. So I, I want to do three things. I want to walk through Jehoram, Jehoshaphat, and Jehovah. And we're going to see one king who's rejected by God, one king who's regarded by God, and then we're ultimately going to see the reprisals of grace that God himself brings into this story. So let's start with Jehoram. He is rejected by God. 
but it's not clean. It actually starts relatively positively. Uh, in verse 2, we're, we're introduced to Jehoram, and then we're said, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, uh, Ahab and Jezebel. So, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. This is one of the things that we can say with confidence about people in this world. They're not all one thing. Even with Jehoram, as we're told, ultimately his life is going to stand as one who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And we'll talk a little bit about this later. Everything that he did was not completely evil. I mean, he did some good things. He made some efforts at reform. He put away Baal in Israel. That's a, that's a positive thing, and we can, uh, we can commend that. We don't know exactly how sweeping his reforms were. Jezebel's still on the scene for another six chapters, at least, in the scriptures. So we know Baal is still being worshipped, but at least at some level, uh, Jehoram seeks to make some reform. But one of the problems with him is that it seems that he was only focused on the outward reform. Because what we see in verse 3, he clings to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he, Jeroboam, made Israel to sin. Uh, Jehoram did not depart from it. And what was the sin of Jeroboam? It was wanting to worship God in his own way. He's the one that set up the calves in Bethel. We looked at Bethel last week. He's the one that didn't necessarily violate the first commandment. He wasn't introducing other gods to Israel, but he was violating the second commandment where he was worshiping God in the way that he wanted to. He wanted to be on the throne. He wanted to make the calls in terms of his life. And you see that sort of playing out here in Jehoram's life as Moab rebels uh, he doesn't seek Yahweh to see what he is to do, but rather he uh, lives by his own power, his own ingenuity. He calls on Edom, who is his tribute. He calls on Jehoshaphat, who he is an ally to by marriage, and he says, let's go out and do this thing. But he never seeks the Lord. It's not until Jehoshaphat says, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire in verse 11 uh, that Elisha is brought on the scene. Jehoram does things his own way. He is the king of his own heart. As you look at the bulletin cover, there's really that, you know, the crown and the heart. It's kind of comes as a question here. Who is the king of your heart? Is it, is it God, Jehovah, who is the king of your heart? Or are you the king of your heart? And unfortunately for Jehoram, uh, he never submitted, he never surrendered his heart to the Lord. And we see that so clearly uh, when Elisha meets him in verse 13. He says, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father or the prophets of your mother. And, and, and then we see even a little bit more about Jehoram. He's like, no, it's the Lord who called us together, the Lord who has put us in this situation where we don't have any water. Uh, it's so typical when we don't want to worship the Lord, when we want to be the king of our hearts, and yet when something goes wrong, we want to blame God. I think we've certainly seen this with this pandemic or really any kind of suffering that we undergo in our life. We can live our life in all of our own way, but then when cancer hits or when we go into a pandemic, what is God doing? See, we can't trust God. Well, 
What do you mean you can't trust God? You've never believed him in the first place. Why are you blaming him now? But Jehoram does it. And, and he does ultimately call on Elisha, but it's only as fire insurance. And this is kind of that idea of a foxhole theology. It's only when the enemy is, is shooting at you and you find yourself in a foxhole. Now you pray to God. But otherwise, if things are going well, there's no need to pray with God. There's no need to walk with him. Jehoram is a man who doesn't surrender his heart to God. And this is what is really scary about this. You know, when it says in verse 3, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. We, we are really invited to look into our own hearts uh, because we recognize that they're mixed. And, and we have sins that we cling to or uh, like Hebrews uh, chapter 12 says, we have sins that cling to us. And the question is, are, are our hearts surrendered? Uh, this is, you know, we talk about the gospel. We talk about this idea that we're more sinful than we really want to believe, but then also we're more loved than we ever would have dared hope. And one of the things that we say is that when we live in that gospel tension through the finished work of Christ, it really frees us to repent. And this is what, of course, Jehoram couldn't do. He wasn't free in that sense. He didn't have true independence in his heart. Uh, he couldn't repent. But this is what we're invited to do. You think of Psalm 139 where David says, uh, Search my heart, know me, try me, see if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. He is free knowing he is loved by God to search his heart and repent and walk in that way, to throw off, as the Hebrew says, the sin that so easily entangles us and clings to us. Uh, and so we want to make sure that we're not ultimately Jehoram, not surrendering, not repenting, not living in the freedom that the gospel affords. On the other hand, we have Jehoshaphat, and he is regarded by the Lord uh, in First Chronicles, uh, I believe it's chapter 12, but I could be wrong. Uh, it says that uh, Je uh, Jehoshaphat is a man whose heart was courageous in the Lord. It's one of these great statements of character of a person. Jehoshaphat is counted as a good king. And he is the one, verse 11, as we already pointed out, that seeks the Lord. Um, you know, is there no prophet of the Lord through whom we may inquire of the Lord? And then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. Just a side note here, we may come back to this. We've already mentioned that verse, actually, back when we talked about Elisha. It's the servant, not the king, who points out Elisha, um, not Jehoshaphat or Jehoram, but the servant knew that Elisha was there. The servant knew uh, where to point the kings when they needed help. This is a theme that we're going to see a little bit later on in 2 Kings chapter 5 with Naaman and the servant girl. Naaman, the great Syrian general, uh, the servant girl says, there's Elisha. 
You know, it's the humble in heart that really see the Lord. And Elisha himself was humble. You remember, he poured water on the hands of Elijah. If you want to be great, you need to be a servant first. I often think about this, uh, especially young people, and if you're listening, uh, maybe think about this. You know, so often we want to encourage you as adults, and we say you're being prepared for leadership. Well, if we're saying that to 80, 90% of the people, uh, we can't have 80 to 90% of the people be in leadership at least not leadership as we think about it in from a worldly sense. We, we need to be ready to be servants first. You don't start at the top in your company. You don't start at the top even uh, as, a, as a young adult. I mean, there are things that you need to learn, and you learn those things by serving just in the same way that Elisha did. So Jehoshaphat seeks the Lord. And then note, blessings follow. Uh, I, I love this. In verse 13, Elisha says to Jehoram, what have I to do to you? Go to the prophets of your father and your mother. Um, the king says to him, no, you know, we need God's help. And Elisha says, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I had regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not even look at you nor see you. Do you see the beautiful picture that is here for us? Namely, that Jehoshaphat, as a good, God-fearing king, is able to bring blessing to somebody whose heart is not surrendered to God. And this is just such a wonderful picture of the importance of the life of believers in the communities that we live in. Uh, we walk in different places, in our neighborhoods, in our places of employment, in our families. Uh, and one of the things that we see here is that the Lord has regard for the life of a believer to such a degree that the blessings will flow to the unbelieving King Jehoram, presumably the unbelieving King of Edom. Uh, the, the trouble that they are in is mitigated because of the presence of believers. And this is such a encouragement and challenge for us as believers to be salt and light in our culture. It, we cannot just uh, withdraw uh, you know, we have this sort of city on the hill mentality that if we just kind of pull back and we shine our light, then people will know and come to us and change. No. You know, here is Jehoshaphat in the midst of these kings, and it's because they stand next to Jehoshaphat uh, that the blessing flows to them. So we are called as believers to, uh, to mix it up to get out into the world, uh, to be salt and light, to bring blessing in the places where otherwise blessing might be hard to find. And incidentally, uh, we do this because we have been blessed in that same way. 
You know, we want to, on the one hand, identify with Jehoshaphat here, but I think it's really important that we identify with Jehoram because it is only because the Lord Jesus Christ left his throne in heaven. He didn't just stay sort of a city on a hill away from us, but he incarnated himself and came and stood beside us. And it's only because the true son of David, Jehoshaphat is of the Davidic line, the true son of David, the son of Jehoshaphat, the Lord Jesus came, that we experience the blessings that we do. Commentator uh, Dale Davis puts it this way, Jehoram doesn't deserve the benefits that he gets, but notice why he received them. He received them because Jehoshaphat, the king of David's line, Jehoram received these benefits because of another. If you receive any benefit from God, it is because you stand next to the Davidic king, Jesus, a descendant of David, and Jehoshaphat. You are in exactly the same position as Jehoram. You don't deserve heaven's crumbs, but you receive massive mercies only because Jesus, the Davidic king, stands beside you. And it's in response to this magnanimous grace that we, like Jehoram, have received that we continue to push out and bring the good news into sometimes unsavory places. But this is where the caution is. Because Jehoshaphat, as I've said, was garnered uh, or was uh, in the end considered to be a good God-fearing king. But he is not without reproach. And this is the mixed heart that each person has. Uh, as I've already mentioned, Jehoshaphat entered into an alliance with Ahab. Now, Ahab was a powerful political figure. A lot of prosperity followed him, but he did not follow the Lord, as we know. Uh, and nevertheless, Jehoshaphat allowed his son, Jehoram, to be married to Ahab's daughter. And that has disastrous consequences in the stories that follow uh, with regards to after Jehoshaphat's death. Uh, Jehoshaphat also enters into an alliance here with Jehoram and also with Ahaziah, who's Jehoram's brother, who becomes king after Jehoram. Uh, and in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, Jehoshaphat was prophesied against with the saying, Because you've joined with Ahaziah, the Lord will destroy what you have made. And all their ships were wrecked, and they were not able to go to Tarshish. So God brought judgment on Jehoshaphat because he made unwise alliances. And this is where we need to be particularly wise as we seek to be salt and light in the world. One of the things that you can't help but notice in all of these alliances that Jehoshaphat makes, uh, they were financially driven. Uh, they were seeking to better the future of Israel, whether it was with Ahab, whether it's here, uh, the uh, alliance with Israel to go to Moab and for the tribute, or with Ahaziah, it was the shipmaking industry that was going to bring wealth. And, and I think there is a warning here that we are not to think economically in terms of our alliances, because God, God will not bless that. 
God doesn't bless that. In fact, he brings those things to ruin. And, and ultimately, what we see here is that he prophesies against Jehoshaphat in this way. Second Chronicles chapter 20, it's a good chapter. Uh, here we see Jehoshaphat as his best, as he's seeking the Lord. Uh, he says, we don't know what we are doing, but our eyes are on you. And we also see Jehoshaphat as his worst as he makes the alliance with Ahaziah. But like we said with Jehoram, we're mixed messages. You know, Jehoram did some good things, but ultimately he didn't surrender his life to God. Uh, Jehoshaphat is the opposite. He surrenders his life to God, but he still does evil things. He still does things that aren't pleasing in God's sight. So we have to be careful the measure that we use to measure people, and we have to come back to the final criteria, namely, are we submitted in our hearts to Yahweh? Because this is the last thing that I want you to see. This is the last actor that I want you to see. What Elisha prophesies in answer to the cries of the kings, led by Jehoshaphat, is nothing short of amazing. These are what I'm calling the reprisals of grace. A reprisal is an act of retaliation. And it's amazing here that as we see this mixed band going up in unwise ways, perhaps for an unwise purpose in terms of getting the tribute for Mesha, God promises and God delivers grace. He retaliates not in terms of what they deserve, but he retaliates with mercy upon mercy, as Dale Davis said, massive amounts of mercy. Uh, how do we see that? Well, they're looking for water, right? They're all about to die, uh, and the water comes. God says, there will be neither wind nor rain, but this valley, all of these pools will be filled with water. And this is something that we have seen from God over and over and over again in the history of his people. He always, in desert places, brings water. Uh, and this is so encouraging for us. I think about this today. I, in very real sense, feel like we're in a desert place between the pandemic, the uh, cultural uh, explosions, the anxiety that people feel, um, the, the death that has happened recently, touching our congregation, uh, suicides, just various things. I feel like... Lord, I'm in a desert. I'm, I'm parched. I, my heart is crying out for you. My flesh and my heart fail. But we see this promise of water over and over and over again. Last week, it was where the waters were bitter. I'll make them sweet. Here, it's where there is no water and you feel like you are uh, drowning in dryness. God brings us uh, the overabundance of his heart. And we have to remember that this is the character of God to bring water in the midst of the desert. But then notice, and I love verse 18, this is a light thing to do, he says, of bringing water in the sight of the Lord. But he is also going to give the Moabites into your hand. And then he goes on to describe how every town and city and uh, every field is going to be taken. So it's not only the water, but it's the land. God is going to give victory. Reminds me of Isaiah 49. We read that for our declaration of forgiveness. You know, Israel cries out, 
out for a servant who will deliver Israel. And what does God say there? He says, this, uh, that's a light thing for me to do to deliver you. I am going to give you the whole world. The whole world is going to come and going to worship my servant. It's too light of thing that you should have only Israel. God is such an overwhelmingly generous God. Uh, overwhelmingly good. And I think about that again in terms of our present situation. Uh, so many of us are thinking about just surviving, like as a church, what are we going to do to survive? How are we going to get back to normal? But what if God is saying, no, that's too light of a prayer. You need to be praying that through this, God is going to build his church. God is going to strengthen his church. God is going to remind us of what's important. God is going to strip away all of the accoutrements that we think that we need to have in order to do church in order that I might make you the light for the nations in the way that I have designed uh, you to. And rather than seeing people leaving the church, we're going to blow away the chaff and we are going to see new, fresh converts come into the body of Christ. May it be so. You know, may our prayers be so bold. May we hear this in our minds. This is a light thing you ask. You want water? I can give you all the water that you want. But I'm going to give you people, and I'm going to give you a land. Why? Because ultimately, I am going to give you the whole universe, the cosmos. What do I mean by that? Well, Look at these last two verses. Uh, these are disturbing. Uh, the king of Moab, Mesha, uh, saw the battle was going against him. He first tried to attack the king of Edom when he perceived as the weak spot. Took 700 crack troops, tried to get through there. That failed. Then, as a last resort, he takes his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. What in the world is going on here? Well, we see on the surface, we see that Molech, or Chemesh, the god of the Moabites, was being worshipped. And Mesha, in his last resort, as a pagan, takes the crown prince and sacrifices him to Chemosh. If you remember back to 1 Kings 18, we said that as the Baal worshippers cut themselves and flailed themselves and the blood flowed, we get a picture of paganism. Paganism is this idea that we have to, um, that the God who we are worshiping demands our very life, that the blood flows, and the more that the blood flows, uh, the more that our God is going to be pleased. And we said this is just such a contrast to the picture of the gospel that we get here in the scriptures. Here we don't see this religion that demands, but rather we see a relationship that gives. You know, for God so loved the world uh, that he gave his only son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son, you know, in the councils of peace where the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were together as one God, and they uh, worked out this plan of redemption. God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Mesha thought that if he only did enough, if he only sacrificed enough, then Chemosh, Molech, his God, would be pleased. But in the scriptures, we see the exact opposite. Uh, God says, I am not going to demand the firstborn from them, but I am going to willingly, uh, in the councils of peace, I am going to give you my firstborn, and he is going to lay down his life for you. And thus I am going to win my bride. What a beautiful, beautiful picture of the gospel we get when we realize the opposite of this. You see how revulsion. Uh, revulsing or repulsing this picture is. We're not exactly sure why Israel withdrew. There a great wrath came against Israel. Is this God's wrath? Probably not. Is it Chemosh's wrath? For sure not. Was it a momentary delirium that came on the part of the Moabite soldiers that enabled them to fight and drive Israel away? Possibly. Um, was it a, a fury, a wrath at the brokenness of what they were seeing that so repulsed the Israelites and so they withdrew possibly as well? I think that there is some ambiguity here for a purpose because we see something like this and we see this is, this is not the gospel. This is not the picture that God has given us. Rather, the picture that God has given us is of one who lays down his only son, who willingly goes to the cross in order that we of the mixed hearts may be healed, may be set free, to, truly free, totally free, independent uh, of the sin that so easily clings to us and entangles us. And brothers and sisters, this is our invitation today. As we read this story, uh, we are invited Men and women with mixed up hearts, mixed up motives, all of these things, we're invited to find ourselves surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in finding ourselves surrendered to him, realize that we have a God who just shows us grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy. What he does for us has not even come into the mind of man. We cannot even ask or imagine the goodness that he has prepared for us. May it be so. Happy anniversary, uh, or happy Independence Day, and uh, amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We are so grateful for its promise. May it continue to drive us to true freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Have a great rest of the weekend. If you're visiting with us, uh, don't forget to sign the um, visitor form at the bottom. We'd love to get to know you. I know some of these things are difficult in our uh, segmented age, but we are trying to uh, make some pathways for us to get to know one another. You're welcome to join us at our parking lot. Uh, we do anticipate uh, opening up the, the sanctuary uh, as we go into the fall. So, Lord willing, continue forward with that. But if you would like to get to know us better, or if we can get to know you better, we'd love to do that. Have a blessed day. Goodbye.